It's time to talk about Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. And now, here's Ira. As Las Vegas continues to face challenges from the coronavirus, one sector of the tourist industry hardest hit is air transportation. With airlines under stress as well as health implications for passengers and airline crew, the consequences for reduced commercial air travel to and from Las Vegas are major. Let's talk about this with my guest, Daniel K. Bubb. He's author of Landing in Las Vegas, Commercial Aviation and the Making of a Tourist City published by University of Nevada Press and available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and all the usual places. And for everything about Daniel, you can follow him on Facebook at Daniel Bubb, and that's B-U-B-B. And Dan, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Ira, for having me. It's uh, great to be here. Well, it's an interesting topic, and I wanted to get your background a little bit first so our listeners get a sense of, I know you're a pilot, in addition Mm -hmm. to being the author, of course, and you're a professor at UNLV. Mm -hmm. So give us a little bit more about how you came to where you are today. Absolutely. So from a very young age, I would say roughly around, oh, five years of age, I fell in love with airplanes. I loved everything about them. I loved airports, and I knew I eventually wanted to be a pilot. So I, I became a flight instructor because you have to build your flight time in order to reach a certain level uh, to where airlines will look at you and consider you for employment. So I did some instructing for about six or seven years. And then eventually I got hired to fly for Air Vegas Airlines, which is a local airline that flies passengers over to the Grand Canyon. And so I flew with them for about four years. And while I was a first officer, I also was a ground school instructor for them as well, which means that I was responsible for not only training new pilots, but also a recurrency for pilots who are captains who are first officers. So I really fell in love with aviation. It's kind of stayed with me ever since, and now I have the wonderful opportunity to publish about airlines and airports. Yeah, which is your love, so it works out fine. Absolutely. You know, I'm listening to your voice, Dan, and I already fastened my (laughs) seatbelt. You you sound like the pilot coming over the the PA saying, (laughs) we're about to land in Las Vegas. Hopefully hopefully it's going to be a smooth landing and not a bumpy one. (laughs) Exactly. It's just that mod. I, do you guys go to pilot voice school? I always wondered about that. You, know, you all sound the same that way. <laughs> well, it's good to know I still have my pilot voice after all these years. Oh, yeah, so. absolutely. So this, <laughs> this book that you wrote a few years ago, still an interesting read called Landing in Las Vegas, Commercial Aviation, mm-hmm. the Making of a Tourist City. I want to mm-hmm. touch on the history of commercial aviation in Las Vegas and then get into sure. where we are today and what you look for in the future. And that's not just really what's happening in Las Vegas, but nationally and certainly globally, especially Mm -hmm. in the time of Mm -hmm. coronavirus. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about the history first of commercial aviation and how that was so essential to what you call the making of a tourist city. Sure, absolutely. So from a national level, the airline industry got its start with flying the mail. The post office essentially offered contracts to airlines to fly the mail, and it, it never was intended at the beginning to just be about flying mail. Everybody knew that the airlines were eventually going to want to fly passengers, but it had to get its start. Airmail contracts are very lucrative. Airlines made a lot of money, some of it in a little bit of a questionable way. 
one of the interesting stories goes that originally the airlines were paid by the weight of the mailbags. And so some, some of them tried to make a little extra money by putting rocks or bricks oh, at the bottom man. of the bag. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it happened that one particular flight arrived in Omaha, Nebraska, and this young kid who was a ground crew guy wasn't loading these mailbags. And he heard something kind of clanking together at the bottom of one of the bags, and he looks in, and there's some bricks in there. So he reported it. It eventually made its way to the government, which was not at all happy. And so that's when they started paying the airlines to fly by bulk instead of by weight. With, with passengers, the other thing, too, that's really, really interesting is it wasn't until 1926 through the Air Commerce Act that Congress first attempted to regulate the airline industry, if you can believe this. Prior to this act, pilots were not required to have licenses. Airlines were not required to log their maintenance records. And so there was no accountability. And there were about 44 airlines in the, in the business. So Congress finally wanted to put some sort of regulatory framework in place, which it did through the Air Commerce Act, which was a start. And then eventually it was the Civil Aeronautics Act of 1938, part of which was co-authored by Senator Patrick McCarran, after whom McCarran Airport is named here in Las Vegas who recognized the need for stronger laws, greater regulation. And that really solidified the regulatory framework of the airline industry. Senator McCarran was very, very instrumental, in, along with Representative Clarence Lee, in making that happen. What's interesting, too, about what you mentioned about initially they were, they were paying by weight and mm-hmm. with bricks and stuff. And I'm just thinking when, when the mob controlled Las Vegas, what they were flying in weren't bricks necessarily, but cement. <laughs> yeah. Exactly, yes. So it, they double-dipped. They, they got paid more for the mail supposedly coming in. They used the cement for, obviously, other nefarious activities. Right. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, exactly. Interesting. And, 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 and so with, with Las Vegas, and this was really my interest in writing the book, is other historians have written books on the history of gaming and tourism in Las Vegas, and they're excellent books, and they're very historically accurate. My interest, Ira, was how people got here. I was always thinking about, all right, here is this amazing city in the desert. Well, how did people get here? Did they drive here? Did they fly here? Uh, What happened? And so I thought, you know, what about the airplane? Because if you broaden the scope out a little bit and you look at the American West, it's a very broad and very expansive territory, and the cities are very spread out. And so Certainly, traveling by wagon could take many days. Traveling by car could even take days. But what about the airplane? So the airplane was a perfect fit for the West because it shrunk it through speed, space, and time. And so Westerners really became excited and enthusiastic about the airplane and all that it had to offer. And so what better way to bring people to Las Vegas than by plane? And so if you offer these package deals, which I write about in my book, were very, very instrumental, and they're even key today. You know, where you have a weekend deal, where people can fly in, spend a couple nights at a hotel, give them gaming chips, uh, buffet tickets, show tickets, for all for a reasonable price. And that's going to become very, very popular. So the package deal was really, really instrumental, not just helping develop the aviation industry in Las Vegas, but also Las Vegas itself by bringing more tourists here. Sure. Now, at that time, were they doing junkets as well? Exactly, yes. The junket industry was really, really big, especially in California. They had over 40 different junket airlines, and that was largely how they brought people here. And there's a really interesting story that I write about in my book about Warren Doc Bailey and the Hacienda Airline, 
a really, really interesting story, but just very, very briefly, Bailey had always been interested in opening his own hotel. And this is in the 1950s, and somebody suggested to him, well, why don't you open a hotel in Las Vegas? It's, it's going to boom. So he came out here, and he, he partnered with a group called the National Firm out of Dallas. And so they started building this property that was called the Lady Luck. And so things were moving along fairly well until a writer for Life magazine wrote this article forecasting kind of a gloomy future for Las Vegas, which proved to be not true at all. And so it spoke to a lot of people, including Bailey's partners, the national firm. So he's basically left with his unfinished property and some debt. And so he had to make a pretty quick decision. Do I finish the property? Do I, do I leave it and just cut my losses? Well, he happened to own a fruitcake manufacturing company in California. And it was remarkably popular. It sold about 5,000 fruitcakes a month. So he took the revenue from that business and he finished it with this property, which eventually became called the Hacienda Hotel. And so uh, right about 1956, the junket industry was really, really big. And so Henry Price, who owned one over in Burbank, approached Bailey and said, hey, would you be interested if we flew junkets to bring people to your hotel? And Bailey said, absolutely. And so for seven days a week, the Hacienda was flying in all sorts of people, and it became enormously popular. In fact, it became so popular, Ira, that the commercial airlines became suspicious of Bailey. They thought, okay, he's flying in more people than all of us combined. Does he have an operating certificate? Well, as it turned out, his attorneys had filed an operating certificate with the FAA. Problem is, the application was at the bottom of a pile of paperwork on an inspector's desk for about two years. And so the attorneys were sitting there saying, wait a second, you know, we're sure we filed. And so eventually it went to the California State Supreme Court, and the court uh, overruled and said, nope, you, you have to close down your airline because you don't have an operating certificate. And so it really was kind of an unfortunate end of what is the equivalent of the Southwest Airlines of the junket industry in Las Vegas. That's interesting. Now, you mentioned Lady Luck. I thought originally Lady Luck was just the downtown property, but what you're saying was it was really the Hacienda prior to the name change. Right, exactly. They, they later changed it to the Hacienda. Yeah, see, I learned something yeah. new today just because of yeah. you. And I thought I knew <laughs> well, semi-everything, but evidently not. So. <laughs> well, and the, the other interesting thing, too, is after Doc passed away, his wife Judy was very philanthropic, and the Judy Bailey Theater here on UNLV campus is named after her. So benefits to all of that initial history. And then how yeah. soon did they realize the impact of commercial aviation on Las Vegas in those days and then leading up to the present? I would say right after World War II, and this is largely true of the entire country, it, it boomed. And here, here's the name that I really picked up on in the book and one that I'm currently picking up on with another book that I'm writing, and that is this. I read the airline industry was booming so fast that the airlines and the airports could not keep up with it after World War II. And so it is really this kind of game of catch-up, of enacting these master plans that are usually 10 or 20-year forecasts, basically having to be enacted within three to five years, because that's how big the demand was. And then you start flying pressurized airplanes, like the Lockheed Constellation, that can transport more people, can fly at higher altitudes than other planes. That's really big. And then the advent of the passenger jet was huge. That was transformative for the whole world. But it especially was so for Las Vegas. And so by essentially bringing in all these people in 1955, they brought 500,000 people a year to Las Vegas. By 1960, it was a million. And then virtually every year after that, it was almost exponentially doubled. And that's how rapid it was growing. 
And of course, that coupled with construction of new casinos with more rooms, nicer properties, eventually the high rises. And then you've got really kind of a symbiotic partnership here that is going to flourish over time. So to answer your question, I would say generally right about after World War II. Did deregulation also help the synergy between the commercial airline industry and Las Vegas? It, it did. Uh, initially, it was troubled. It was troublesome because, I, I mean, if you think about it, imagine that you're one of the major airlines and the government is thinking about deregulating the industry, which means you have immediate competition. You have other airlines who are going to come in and undercut your prices. So naturally, you're going to be opposed to it. Problem is that the government is going to overrule you. Uh, air travel demand was booming. It was getting ready to burst at the seams. And the government recognized this. And they basically felt that if you have five or six airlines dominating the market, it's just not going to work. So if we deregulate it, we can bring in all these other airlines. And this is where airlines such as Southwest came in and offered lower fares. And so what we, Las Vegas has basically become is what we call a high-volume, low-yield market. High-volume meaning, meaning a high-volume of passenger traffic. Low-yield meaning you're not going to make a whole lot of profit off of it. But that's really kind of the nature of how Las Vegas has become along with the airline industry. The predecessor to Southwest Airlines mm-hmm. was Western Airlines. Were they also in that category? Western Airlines was. In 1987, they were bought out by Delta Airlines. But yeah, Western TWA, TWA was a legacy airline here in Las Vegas. And then much earlier, Western Air Express was also a legacy airline here in Las Vegas, Bonanza Airlines. Those rose to prominence, but they weren't really, except for TWA, on the national level, as was United, Delta, American, and the other really major airlines. Before we take a break, would you say that you would have predicted with your background the impact of commercial aviation on the Las Vegas economy? I would, simply because it's, you have a tourist market here. You have a gaming market. That's going to attract millions of people. And so you have to have some way to bring people here. And that's why air traffic was ideal. Now, from my studies, from my research, airlines have always competed with the automobile. So historically, if you look at automobile traffic, about 49% of people who come to Las Vegas come here by automobile. Air travel is right at 47%. So historically, and they, they still remain very, very close to each other as the two primary dominant means of bringing people here. So given the booming passenger industry, given that so many people had saved their money during World War II and they were willing to travel with their families longer distances than before, I, I definitely would say that about Las Vegas as well. Well, let's take a break. And when we get back, we're going to talk about the challenges of the coronavirus. And also, okay. an interesting question before we even do that. So we'll come right back. My guest, Daniel K. Bubb, is author of Landing in Las Vegas, Commercial Aviation and the Making of a Tourist City, published by University of Nevada Press, available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and all the usual places. And for everything about Daniel, follow him on Facebook at Daniel Bubb, B-U-B-B. We'll be right back. We'll be back with more Talk About Las Vegas with Ira in just a moment. You think you know Vegas? But how much do you really know about this neon city? See the dark side of the bright lights at the Ma Museum where you can explore how a tough little town transformed into a gaming metropolis with a little help from organized crime. You won't find these stories of lawbreakers and law enforcement, mob bosses and prosecutors anywhere else. 
The Mob Museum in downtown Las Vegas. More information at themobmuseum.org. Now let's get back to Talk About Las Vegas with Ira. Welcome back. I'm talking with Daniel K. Bubb. He's author of Landing in Las Vegas, Commercial Aviation and the Making of a Tourist City, published by University of Nevada Press and available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble and all the usual places. For everything about Daniel, follow him on Facebook at Daniel Bubb. And Dan, before we get into the impact of the coronavirus, one other quick question. You mentioned about the competition between the airline and the car in terms of, let's say, Los Angeles and Las Vegas particularly. Mm -hmm. With the advent of TSA and all the security precautions and all of the traffic going to and from the airport, years ago it was just going to the airport, getting on the plane and going. There's a lot more steps now. So does it get more of a balance between ease of access or whether you take the car or whether you fly? I think there's a little bit of a trade-off there. I, I think air travel lost some people when you essentially started increasing security, the difficulty of going through TSA. I, I mean, for a lot of people, especially those who don't travel very frequently, flying can be very stressful. And this is another theme I'm picking up on my research right now that I'm working on with another book, which essentially is this. If, if you don't, and it, and it makes sense, you know, if you don't fly very frequently, it's going to be a very stressful experience from the time you have to try to find a parking space at the airport to getting your boarding pass to going through TSA, which can be very stressful, especially if the lines are really long and you don't have a whole lot of time to connect uh, to catch your flight. To the time you're sitting at the gate, uh, gates can be really crowded. The seating can be really old. For example, I, I, I hope that McCarran someday will change out those old seats that they have at the gate that kind of slide backwards, you know, where people sit down, they slide backwards and crash into the person behind them. I, I'd like to see some different seating if, if possible. Well, that, wait, that sounds like an airline seating, too. <laughs> it's pretty close. Yeah, yes, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, where you're just crunching a whole bunch of people together, especially in coach class, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> With a dreaded middle seat. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. It, and, and so, essentially, what's happening is airlines are not going to change their model anytime soon. They're going to try to fit in as many people as they possibly can. Now, <clears throat> when we get to COVID here in just a minute, that's going to change a little bit. But prior to COVID... That's the airline model. So airports are having to pick up the slack. They're having to modify their terminals, make them more comfortable, make them more welcoming, you know, with, with better shops, better restaurants, more windows, better lighting. So, for example, if you think of Terminal 3 over at McCarran Airport, it's very modern, very competitive with a lot of other airports. And so that is essentially what is happening. And so when you start placing restrictions on that, like uh, going through security, having much longer lines, it's, it's less appealing to people. And just as you mentioned a little bit ago, you know, having to sit in coach class where you're, you're crammed together in very uncomfortable seats, very little leg room, uncomfortable seats where, especially if you have long flights over three or four hours, can be very, very hard on your body. And so that's not appealing to a lot of people. So instead, what they're going to do is they're going to drive. Businesses now are no longer sending business people to meetings. Instead, they're doing it online through Zoom, through uh, FaceTime, and other, other computer media. And so that also has changed the dynamic of the airline industry. And so, yeah, it, the airlines, even though people are going to fly in general, they were seeing slightly lower 
volume because of these changes. And, and, now, and that, that can be very stressful. Yeah, and let's get right into the coronavirus mm-hmm. impact. Mm-hmm. And that's on a, from your perspective, a global perspective, a national perspective, and a Las Vegas perspective. Mm-hmm. Is that going to decimate commercial aviation for the next five to 10 years? According to predictions from the International Air Transport Association and the Airlines for America, absolutely. The numbers are just devastating, Ira. And so let, let me give you a few of them here so, and also so your listeners can, can kind of get a sense of this as well. So after 9-11, the airline industry lost $23 billion. With COVID, their forecast to lose anywhere from $83 billion to $313 billion, which is a staggering amount of money. It is, yeah. Air travel and the Asian Pacific is down 41%. And airlines are furloughing thousands of employees. Norwegian Air Shuttle furloughed 1,000 employees. Scandinavian SAS, 10,000. KLM, 2,000. British Airways, 35,000. And here's a crazy thing as well, and this is just not happening overseas, but happening here in the United States. Some of these airlines are flying what we call ghost flights, meaning that the planes are completely empty. There, there are no passengers on board, and the reason why the airlines are flying them is because they want to preserve these very valuable takeoff and landing slots at the world's busiest airports. From an economic standpoint, it's understandable. I'm surprised there are no protests from environmentalists where you're flying a, an airplane where there's no Right, right. Well, a lot, a lot of environmentalists are unaware of this. Right. Uh, the airlines were not, were, were trying to keep it, keep it kind of quiet. And so, yeah, it, it's just, it's been a staggering impact, not only globally, but also here in the United States. For example, in March, according to Sarah Nelson, who is the president of the Flight Attendance Union, passenger volume was down 97%, that's, which is that, just that, absolutely Yeah, that's amazing. almost, I mean, that's 3%, <laughs> you might as well close everything down in that sense. Uh, exactly. That's amazing. Now, yeah. looking at, from a local standpoint, meaning local and for people listening to us from all over the world, mm-hmm. looking at it from a Las Vegas perspective, what do you see as the impact? Because I'll give you my sense of it partially, and I'm not an expert, but mm-hmm. one of the saving graces that we have, and we discussed it earlier on, was the car. And mm-hmm. if you are, our major market is still Los Angeles, Southern California, mm-hmm. and most people that come to Las Vegas can certainly come by car. And if mm-hmm. one person has a car and the other one doesn't, they'll they'll just you know, ride shotgun with the guy or there's right. a whole family coming out or whatever. So there uh-huh. is some slack taken up by the the nearness of Southern California, which mm-hmm. is our biggest market, mm-hmm. and the fact that they mm-hmm. can take cars, vehicles, trucks here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and what, what's going to also fuel that, and I think this is one of the central themes of the problem with COVID, is you also have a psychological problem. Even though airlines are going to extraordinary lengths to try to bring back passengers or deep cleaning their planes, uh, some airlines like Delta are blocking out the middle seats. I mean, they're really going to extraordinary lengths to try to create a safe air travel environment. Psychologically, it is still embedded in the public's mind that COVID is dangerous. And no matter what the airlines do, it's not going to be safe enough. So here's a bigger problem that we're, we're, we're going to have to face and we're going to have to do something about this, is how do we convince the public that flying on an airplane is safe? If you wear a mask, if you go through the proper sanitization procedures, some airlines like Frontier check people's temperature before they get on board the plane. I, I think, Ira, there has to be a national publicity effort here, and it's going to take all of us to abide by these practices. And then I think we have a chance 
at alleviating that doubt in the public's mind. As long as it's there, as long as people turn on the television and they see the staggering numbers of people who've been infected by COVID and how many people have died, that that doubt is going to linger. And that's very, very problematic. And so that's why airlines like Frontier and United are, are basically creating commercials. They're trying to convince the public that it's safe to fly. And so if we can do that, we're going to see more passengers. We're going to see a little bit of a return here to Las Vegas, where we're used to seeing all the passengers walking up and down this, excuse me, all the, all the tourists walking up and down the strip. It was a little alarming for a while there just to see the strip as kind of a ghost town. So, yeah, I, I think that is going to be one of the major challenges going forward. And if we can solve that problem, then I think we have a really good chance here at restoring the public faith in air travel. And I think airlines are going to see larger passenger volume. Do you think that Las Vegas will weather the storm? In other words, you have the airline industry, the commercial aviation industry, mm-hmm. as one entity, but you have Las Vegas as the mm-hmm. tourist city. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. with or without the airline business, and the, and I alluded to it earlier, well, it didn't allude, I talked about it, mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. Southern California. Do mm-hmm. you see us at least maintaining a certain amount of business activity until the airlines can recover through a national campaign, as you suggested? Right. Uh, it, it won't be at the levels as it was before. In fact, we're, we're uh, predicting that the passenger volume uh, that we saw in 2019 is not going to return until 2023, as long as the, the virus still remains kind of rampant throughout the country. Uh, we're, we're, the, the casinos are restricted by the number of people who can gather. I think you can't, I, I'm trying to remember, I think you can't have more than 50 people gathering in one specific place. And so as long as there are these restrictions, there are no shows. All the shows have been shut down, so that's a loss of revenue. The nightclubs have been shut down as well. That's a loss of revenue. So I I think the casinos are going to see some return, but it definitely will not be the same as it was in 2019. I think if casinos get recreative, though, for example, Mm -hmm. they may not be able to open a showroom, but they could put a small lounge together Mm -hmm. and maybe put Mm -hmm. the performers up on on an isolated Mm -hmm. stage Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. you can have some entertainment, which adds to the feeling of excitement in a casino and and pay the performers to do that Mm -hmm. a Mm -hmm. decent amount. So that way Mm -hmm. they're competitive with some other casino that may not do that. The other thing, too, I think that comes into play, and this is just my theory, Mm-hmm. is at some point, I don't know when that is, at some point, most people will take a calculated risk and mm-hmm. say, you know what, I can't live my life sheltered for the next mm-hmm. X number of months mm-hmm. or years. Mm-hmm. I'm going to take a chance on flying or driving or whatever it happens to Sure, be. sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, no, nobody wants to be cooped up in their home. Everybody's anxious to get out. They want to go back to work. They want to go back to school as long as it's safe. Right, right. I'm not but, saying take your rational... Yeah decisions or, right, or defiant right. positions, but I'm right. saying people will right. say, you know, this may be worth a chance to go and do this. Sure. And, and, and certainly if the price is right. I mean, prices are low right now. Right. Casino room prices are down. Airline prices are down. So really, if there's a time to go, this is it uh, while the prices are down. And, and then eventually they'll, they'll go back up as we see more people fly, as we see more people come to Las Vegas. So absolutely, with I, Los Angeles being kind of close by, sure, absolutely. Yeah, and I think, too, that Las Vegas as an industry is more creative than the av- commercial aviation industry, and that yes. they'll come up with ways to attract people here, even if it's just by yes. car coming yes. up from Southern California. I think the airline mm-hmm. industry, maybe due to regulation or other factors, is mm-hmm. a little bit more slow-moving in terms of coming up with solutions. 
sure. We, we, we have to. I, I mean, Las Vegas has to reinvent itself. And, and that's how we keep everything going here. Right. But uh, I think even I, the commercial yeah. aviation industry has to reinvent itself. Oh, absolutely. I, I think they're going to have to think about how people fly. Uh, I mean, the, the one thing that is fortunate is the president signed a $58 billion kind of a bailout package for the airlines, $29 billion for payroll grants and $29 billion in loans. That's been helpful. But what we're finding and economists are not finding is that might not be enough and they may need more money to be bailed out. And so there's some issues there. A number of airlines have already gone bankrupt. Transstates, for example, under the United United Express brand has gone bankrupt. Compass, American Eagle has bankrupt. Virgin Australia, Avianca, a number of airlines have, has, have really succumbed. But have this, they filed bankruptcy and are still operating? Because there's a difference between filing bankruptcy and not operating. Uh, the, operating. These, the, these airlines filed bankruptcy and went out of business. Okay. And yeah. that, that's a different yeah. story because a lot of airlines will do it for protection and they'll right. keep operating. So I just wanted to clarify that. Right. Exactly. Yeah. There's so much to talk about and yet we, mm-hmm. we don't have enough time to do it all. So I'm going to have to have you come back when you have your new book ready and we can I'd, get I'd more into to. discussion. <laughs> so great. I'd love to. And next time, I hope I don't, before we start the show, I hope I don't have to show you my boarding pass again. <laughs> Because now that we've established a relationship. Well, well then we're, we're going to make sure you're sitting in first class. Excellent. So. Excellent. <laughs> Does that sound like a deal? It does. My <laughs> guest has been Daniel K. Bubb. That's B-U-B-B, Daniel K. Bubb, author of Landing in Las Vegas, Commercial Aviation and the Making of a Tourist City, published by University of Nevada Press, available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and all the usual places. For everything about Daniel, follow him on Facebook at Daniel Bubb. And Dan, thanks for being on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thanks. See you next time. You've been listening to Talk About Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. Yeah.